Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. Just in a moment, I want to give you a moment of solitude and silence. Silence and solitude is a luxury that we no longer could afford to live without. We're bombarded by news cycles, notifications, and a lot of times we're pulled by so many different meta-narratives that take you away from God's assignment and calling for your life. So at this moment, Will you bow your heads, and we're going to practice the rule of life, but to center yourself to hear from the Lord today. For all of us who are watching um, different parts of the country and the world and present here in the theater, let's exhale all those automatic thoughts, all those worries and toxicities that's harassing our inner world. Bring it before the feet of the Lord and lay it there. And inhale the transcending peace of God. It's the air we breathe. It's our daily bread to form us and shape us. All God's people pray. Amen. Amen. So let's put this picture up there. So about a few months ago, I wrote a piece entitled How the Rise of Anti-Asian Hate, COVID-19, and Cancel Culture All Meet at the Foot of the Cross. And thank you, Flipboard. Flipboard's a major news agency that shares all different major news from Times to NBC, and they picked up my article for Christianity Today, and the subtitle the editors at CT chose to use for my piece was, the pandemic is a microcosm revealing our worst impulses and how we are governed by them. I like to focus on few key words that they highlighted in the piece because I believe they're critical to where we're headed today and critical about what we want to discuss together. The first word I want to focus on is microcosm. What is a microcosm? Microcosm is a lens you look through. So COVID, in a sense, is not really the enemy. It's what it does to us and how it affects human nature. That's really the phenomenon at interest and why it would be interesting to look through. It's a microcosm, a lens. And then revealing. The second word would be 
Revelation means what? It means to bring to surface what you might not have even subconsciously realized, subconsciously realized, and it brings to the surface what you might not even know before this stressful event. Meaning, what, how you behaved or thought might not have risen to the surface at all. And the word impulse. Impulse is a word that's focused more on the middle part of the brain, middle, <laughs> the nervous system. The instinctive nature, instinctive nature of res responding to a crisis event, fear, right? Flee or flee response. Controlling how we respond to stressful moments in our lives. And so you act out without the critical thinking ability, which is the front part of the brain, which we'll focus more on a bit. But those three things are critical to think through because today, let's move down here to study the brain a bit. The question is, fear brings out the worst of us. Tell someone next to you, free. fear brings out the worst of us. Um, you guys remember the video during the beginning of the pandemic in the UK where ladies were fighting over toilet paper? I remember counting sheets in the beginning of the toilet paper. And I told my kids, hey, hey three squares. Okay? I remember in, in the video in the UK, they, um, one, one woman was begging the other woman, can I just have one roll of toilet paper then? She was taking the whole store. It was so sad. Fear brings out the worst of us. And we know that because in crisis events, it's a microcosm of bringing out the worst part of us. But the question is, why? And the answer to that is there's a physiological reason for why. Literally, if you study the brain, the hidden brain, you can know exactly, physically, why that happens. But then there's also how that fear is used by both political purposes and capital purposes, how businesses make money off that fear. But let's answer the physical, physiological reason why fear brings out the worst of us. So the front part of the brain, as you see in the diagram, is the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain that controls cognition. It's the center of cognition. It's the center of critical thinking ability. But what happens in stressful events is that that part of the brain begins to what? Shrink. When fear takes place because of the event, the stress, the critical thinking ability, which you probably need, shrinks. In contrast to that, in the amygdala, you see that in the middle part of the brain. That part is contrast to the prefrontal cortex. In what the neurons begins to increase. And that part of the brain, amygdala, what, it's what? Simply the part that controls fear. So when you ask the question, why are you doing that? Tell us, why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense. That's, and my family asked me, he goes, why do you look angry? when you don't understand something. Because I am angry. Because when I think something is stupid, why are you doing it? <laughs> I, this is a question I asked the whole pandemic, the whole election cycles. 
all the time. My question, my ultimate question was, why are people so stupid? People are like, wow, that's a profound question. I know. Now I know. Because the critical part of the brain shrinks, and the part that creates the primitive instinctual part, the impulse, increases. So therefore, you give in to your fear because fear seems like the ultimate reality when it could be a past event. Because what? You as one part of the physical domain of a living organism wants to survive. And that's exactly why you do things that don't make sense and why smart people do stupid things in stressful moments. Tell someone, phew, whew. So I'm not that dumb, it's just my brain shrinks, literally. <laughs> but then, more importantly, the, the what, the why question we answer, but how people take that fear and capitalize on it is something that you and I need to understand simply because news companies, social media companies, Facebook in a study about four or five years ago already discovered through multiple studies, quantitative studies, that teenage girls are at greatest risk of suicide ideation because of Instagram but they hid it for a long time, right? Because fear sells, because it appeals to the instinctual middle part of the brain. And the more you enforce fear, the more people, what, clickbait. The more money you make. Politicians take this and run with it. Good politics is not explaining policy. You ever sit through a Fed meeting they determine policy. Any of you guys done, done it before? No. Why? Because it's boring. It's on C-SPAN. Watch it. It takes four hours, and they're just like, what? But when people talk about dystopia and the end of times and when this country is going to become communist or dystopian, you're like, oh, that's interesting. It speaks to fear. If you want to sum up what we're grappling with, in this particular cultural moment in history, we're talking about one word. And let me read it to you to explain that word we're talking about. So Trish Hall, in Writing to Persuade, was a New York Times op-ed chief and editor for about over a decade, says, empathy is not inherently negative or positive, it's a tool. It can be used generously or cynically. Richard Friedman, a psychiatrist and professor at Well Cornell Medical College and a regular writer for the Times, said that many people understand, misunderstand empathy. They think it means to identify with others, to be sympathetic and truly feel their pain. But in reality, Empathy involves understanding the psychological makeup of other people. It's about knowing how to get under their skin. She continues, brilliant politicians, demigods, psychopaths are often empathetic. And I think Richard is one. They, may tar they make their target feel understood, known. Depending on the moral compass of a leader, Empathy can feel positive or destructive. Either way, 
It's a connection that lets you get through to people. Empathy is what we're talking about. And in this age of outrage, a lot of people believe that empathy is love. Misunderstand empathy as love. Which is critical to understand the difference. Because as we move to our current series, I want you to understand what love is. Because the fruit of God, the first fruit of the Spirit is love. When we invite God to form in us people who can become and bring the shalom of God into this world, we're talking about that unconditional, unadulterated love that the world needs more than ever before. But at this moment, we live in what I call a CPR world. COVID ravaged, politically polarized, and racially divided. So much, in fact, that fear and vitriol is what we're choking on. If there was an emergency ever before, I don't know, if this is not an emergency, I don't know what is. Right now, at this moment, the culture needs real CPR. God's breath to breathe life into the poisonous gas we're inhaling. And that's why it's critical to know what the Spirit of God, as we invite Him to partner, creates in us versus what secularly people think love is. A lot of times, empathy, to feel understood. It's critical to know the difference because this world is being ravaged by empathy and it's hurting and harming so many people. So let's look to the pas passage today. Here, we want to answer that question. Why shouldn't we confuse empathy with love? So look at this very carefully. You know, draw you draw your attention. At dawn he appeared again in temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made their stand before the group. Okay, so they're appealing to the people Jesus is teaching. So look at the stakeholders of the narrative. They're a crowd with Jesus. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Which isn't true. It's a stone both. Right? Amen? How many, how many people want to stone the man first? <laughs> but no, but okay, sometimes people read scripture and they're like, that's so mean. So vicious. No, it's after a trial. And it never happened and it wasn't enforced. That's why they're using it right here as a ploy in verse 5. In the law, Moses has commanded such stone such women, but now what do you say? And they, with verse 6, they're giving it away. They were using this question as a what? Trap. 
in order to have a bias of accusing him. What was the trap? Well, what did the Pharisees, first, the lens to look through this text, the Pharisees were political leaders, brilliant political leaders, graduated from Harvard and Yale usually. Yale is the best law school, Harvard might be two. Columbia might be three. Bronze, no kidding, no kidding. But they were brilliant politicians viewing this situation through a political lens. And what is the trap? The trap is using the idea of empathy. The Greek word empathy is empathia. The prefix is in, to be literally in someone's, you know, lens, to look through someone's life. Pathy is passion or experience. What is what it literally means? It's what Drake said, to be in your feelings. To be in someone's, literally in their feelings without actually being in them, looking through them. In, in other words, it's what you call moral imagination. It's being able to perceive and feel something that you necessarily might not, vicariously living through that lens. And Pharisees were brilliant, brilliant politicians because they, you, they were empathetic. I mean, they understood the fear of Rome. And that's the trap. Rome's fear is what? Instability. Pax Romana. Rome loved peace. They conquered the ancient world. And if you were a Roman citizen at this time, you did nothing. You didn't have a job. Your job was to be a Roman citizen. People wait on you. You know the grapes? They bring it to you. They bring you water, drinks. Slaves brought water. So if you were a Roman citizen, you did nothing. So their greatest fear is rebellion or instability. Now, if you murder someone in the street, that's instability. And so the Pharisees were hoping to entice Jesus into murdering this woman. But that's not the only case. They also understood that Jesus would be implicated in this. They understood their greatest fear. But they also understood the fears of the crowd. They believed, and the theologically, the reason why they were captivated to the Roman Empire was because of sin. That's what the Pharisees taught, behaviorism. The reason why we don't have power and glory is because we disobeyed God, and sin is the problem. So therefore, they were what? Using empathy to stir the crowd, to draw outrage from the crowd. We had a friend in the past that she told us that when anyone did something rude to her in the club or on the street or her barista or anyone did anything to her, move down here, she would fat shame them. I said, why? And she smiled because <laughs> it always gets to their head. What if they're like anorexic skinny? doesn't matter. They'll be like, I'm not fat. What are you talking about? Yes, you are fat. Look at you. You're fat. <laughs> she said it would move so deeply under the skin, it would shake their whole, be disorienting. She goes, it doesn't matter. If they're not fat, I'm calling them fat. Because fat shaming is a way to get under the skin. And she's right. If you study Harvard Public Health, 
Um, the School of Public Health did a whole study on the Scarlet F. How in society, media has created, perpetuated the idea of fat shaming. And every person on this planet, but especially women, are in this narrative of what, what thin is. That almost your value is weighed on kilograms and pounds. And not who you really are. So, my friend understands what? Empathy. She understands how to get under someone's skin. Look at this uh, post here. Move down an Instagram post. This this per this magazine <laughs> created a T-shirt said, "Being fat is not beautiful. It's an excuse." And it created outrage. Empathy. It's not what we think it is. It's a lens you look through. And the lens you look through can make you feel understood. Like someone understands your fears. It's what politicians do to win. Or even people can do to get close to us. And if we don't understand this, it can be destructive to our society, as to our lives. That's not something that God does. He just doesn't just understand our experience and lives in them and through them. He's committed to us. So what's then, why shouldn't we confuse empathy with love? First lesson we learned from this text. Read with me. Empathy is what? Moral imagination, but love is what? A moral imperative. There's a difference. A huge difference. Empathy, empathy is moral imagination, meaning it's just something you see. Love has a moral imperative, a beneficence. In bioethical research, Beneficence is displayed as a, a sense of altruism, displayed in mercy, kindness, and acts of generosity. Actually, St. Augustine, in this passage, calls in a commentary this text between the women and Jesus, mercy and the sinner. You see, guys, in the gospel, God sees you completely. You're naked. Tell someone next to you, you're naked. Actually, just, no, don't do that. You're <laughs> Actually, you're not naked. But to God, you're, you're, you're completely bare. Everything you are ashamed of, you might not even be caught in the act. But God sees but instead of using it to reduce you, he is literally the personification of mercy. Because the Pharisees used moral imagination as a tool to try to destroy Jesus. It was brilliant politics, but it wasn't love. 
Jesus, on the other hand, had a moral imperative because he loved the women to protect her no matter what the cost. Even popularity. Even reputation. In honor and shame culture, you don't do that. You don't stick your neck out for someone caught in scandal. You join the crowd. But Jesus was mercy. And I think that that's such a powerful picture of the gospel. I don't know where you might be in your life, in whatever you're caught in, what, whatever narrative you're caught in, but Jesus is mercy. Tell someone next to you, Jesus is mercy. If you're a seeker asking the question, who is Jesus? He is mercy. He is kindness. He's beneficence in action. So when we're most vulnerable and off guard, Jesus gives us what we need most. What we fear most is what we need in love. That's what love is. Protecting us in our shame, our fears. That's Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, that's who Jesus is. So empathy is moral imagination, but love is a moral imperative. That's the first thing. Let's move down. Second, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down started to write on the ground with his finger. You see, if you read the very beginning of this text, it's actually the Sabbath where you're forbidden to write on any paper, except they allow you to write on the ground. Jesus is showing the Pharisees he knows the law. Because I know the law, suckers, I know it. So he's not actually doing anything that would make him guilty of breaking the law, because that's what the Pharisees or trying to entice him to do, Jesus is saying, I know the law, but I know mercy. Mercy is actually greater than the law. That's why I came. John 3, uh, 17, God sent his son to the world to save the world, not to condemn it. God tells us, right? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 18, right? If you go down in the passage of Galatia, there is no such law among these things. Love, joy, peace, patience. Meaning, Mercy, love, kindness are infinite, are infinite. It's infinite. You can do them perpetually and add value. At this, those who heard began to go away because Jesus said, whoever uh, without sin to, to cast the first stone, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the women still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, he said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There are two things about this text that you have to understand. What would happen if the women actually were stoned? Would Jesus simply be indicted in the scandal of this, creating this instability in Rome? 
No, it would also be the crowd. The Pharisees used empathy and outrage to have stones in their hands to commit a crime they knew that could be interpreted to be compliant to their laws, but would be completely arbitrary to the laws of Rome. Meaning, if this exercise or moral imagination was carried out, the group would also be implicated in the murder. So the Pharisees thought about the collateral damage, and they didn't care. For the sake of political expediency, they did not care who, what, they hurt. They wanted to kill two birds, one stone. They wanted to get Jesus killed and the group, their own people that they're teaching. That's nefarious. That's sickening. But here it is. Empathy can do that. Empathy can pull you into a narrative and leave you holding the back because you feel understood. Someone went into your feelings. In, tell someone, in your feelings. And they sold you a placebo, a snake oil, disguised as snake oil, and you bought it. Sucker born every minute? Exactly. That's how good empathy is. Once you feel a connection, sometimes you get caught up in a narrative. You don't even know what you're doing anymore. Why? Because, the, again, the physiological part, the, the prefrontal cortex shrinks, the middle part of the brain increases. And now you're what? You're just responding to stress. Let's put this picture up. Why this is important, why it's so critical to understand the difference between the spirit of the age and the spirit of God, and how the spirit of God produces what we call love as the first fruit of the spirit, is because we cannot allow anyone to be harmed in the name of love, in the name of understanding. This day was a dark period in America. And let me tell you, at first, I was furious at the people who protested. American democracy is about a peaceful transfer of power. That didn't happen. You can protest peacefully, but once it gets violent, you've broken that solemn oath. And rioters should not be protesting in Portland, burning down buildings, taking the head down of Abraham Lincoln, which is idiotic. Then I got to thinking about the commonality, the, mono, the, the, the unity and the uniformity of the people that protested the election results. And they did an expose in Washington Post and the Times. And there's one commonality of most people who went to the protests. Most of them didn't have, were unemployed and had nothing to lose. Foreclosures of their houses, back taxes. They bought the narrative from a demagogue that their lives are broken because of other people. 
and they bought it. And now do you know where those people are going? Jail. Lives ruined. I'm not mad at them anymore. I understand them. And if the church doesn't begin to stop fighting cultural wars, we're going to lose our God-given mandate. Our mandate is what? Grace, generosity, and what? Redemption. Jesus came to what? Seek and save the lost. The sick and suckers. Tell someone, if you're a sucker, Jesus got you. Because this is what this, this, this woman was. She was a sucker. She was suckered into this narrative, and she did not have to stand there because it wasn't part of the law. Where is the man? Why is the man always left out of the narrative? People blame Eve in the garden, but he, the text says he was standing right there. you got to read the fine print. So why is it imperative to know the difference between empathy and love? Second lesson. Because empathy can be used for what? Nefarious purposes, but love cannot. Love cannot. Folks, we have to seriously examine what the ecclesia is called to do at this cultural moment in the CPR world. COVID ravaged, politically polarized, and racially divided more than ever. We need to invite the spirit to form in us the, lo the love that can change the world again. Amen? And that's what we're inviting God to do in this series. And that love cannot be produced by human will. It has to be a surrender. Because my friend Matthew Capps, who graduated with me from Gordon-Conwell in our doctor program, said that salvation is surrender, but sanctification, sanctification is war. It's like, no, God, I don't want to surrender my vitriol, my hate. No, I want to be right. Tell someone, I want to be right. Who cares if you're right or wrong? That doesn't matter right now. We live in a CPR world. We really need cardiopulmonary resuscitation right now. That's the real CPR. The spirit to breathe life into the church because the world is choking on vitriol and fear. And more than ever, we need men and women that can be the light, that can be the true source of love, that people that protect, not exploit. Because Google, Facebook, everyone, and, and the tech giants are making money off this to a certain extent. We have brilliant marketing strategies. We need a community that represents hospitality and sincerity. And be the hope. Be that hope that people need. Amen? Let's stand and pray together.
Will you lift your hands with me to the Lord today to surrender? And maybe even be at war with God. Because we've got to get over this thing, our vitriol of falling into the meta-narratives of the culture. There's one kingdom narrative. That narrative is grace, generosity, and redemption. He's calling us out of the world's narrative and into his. How can we be like Jesus? How can we be the definition of mercy, kindness, and generosity at this particular cultural moment? I don't think yelling is working, right? I mean, it's not working. We got to win the battle of the heart over the battle of behavior. I learned that as a parent, lecturing doesn't work. It's McDonald's runs and Wendy's runs in the same day that win the heart. It might damage the heart, but it wins the heart. And sometimes you're willing to lose in the moment to win the day later. Because if you lose the heart, you lose the battle of behavior anyway. So let's pray today. Salvation is surrender if you're a seeker. Surrendering and trusting in Him to lead you. But if you're a Christian and caught in the narrative of right and wrong, then this part is war. The surrendering, laying down your arms, literally. The blows and the fists and the anger and the vitriol. Because Jesus said to the Pharisees, mercy triumphs over judgment. The cross demonstrates mercy triumphing over judgment. God always, always chooses mercy. So let's sing this song as our prayer. And remember grace. Love is a verb. We're forgiven because he was condemned. It's what he did. Not what he thought to do. It's what he did. Jane Austen is right. It's not what you think or do you intend to do is what you do that defines you. And at this moment, we need the church to be defined by altruistic action. Let's make this our prayer. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. I'm accepted. You were condemned. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me. 
Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, we're COVID ravaged. We're politically polarized. And we're racially divided more than ever. At times, it feels like the apocalypse is upon us, pushing us to the brink. We're choking on fear and betrayal, God. We need a fresh breath of your spirit today in our times. And we, if we needed the church to ever have the presence of God, breathing life into us so we can breathe life into the world and to the people around us, it's now, at this moment. Send a fresh wind of your spirit, God, on us. Help us to be formed by the love of God that can change the world again. Will you pray that right now? you had second thoughts about what it means to be loving a few years ago, we, have, we don't have that luxury anymore. There's so many of us, so many people in our society are vulnerable and need mercy and love that's found in Christ. Will you bow your heads for the benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people say, Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. My name is Minyoung. I'm a member here at 180 Church, and we're so glad that you were able to attend today's service with us. Um, there are a few community news that I'd like to share with you all. The first announcement is about our tithes and offering. We want to remind all of our members here at 180 Church to keep God in the center of your life, which includes your finances. You guys can do so through the online payment method shown on the screen. You can give through Venmo at Church 180, Zelle and Chase QuickPay at offering at 180church.tv, or if PayPal is your preferred method of giving, you can head over to our website at 180church.tv where there is a link to donate through PayPal. 
Our next announcement is about our prayer text hotline at 180 Church, which is available on text at 5397prayer and also via email at prayer at 180church.tv. This is a resource for everybody and especially during this difficult time where we need some prayer and support, there is a prayer team that's ready to help you and to pray for all the requests that you may have. Um, if your prayers have been answered, you can also share them on the text hotline and we can celebrate the good news together. Next up is about small groups at 180 Church. These are smaller pockets of our community that meet on a weekly basis where we can dive a little bit deeper into the word and share how the message from that Sunday uh, spoke to us. We have a few different groups that are all meeting virtually now. And if you're not currently connected with the group, you can reach out to Pastor Billy at the email shown on the screen and he can get you plugged in into a group for you. On the topic of community, we also have a number of different social media handles and channels where you can follow us, like us, and love us during the week. We have a Tumblr page at 180BRG where we post a chapter of the Bible a day so you can read through the Bible with us. We also have a Facebook page at 180 Church. Dr. Sammy, our head pastor here at 180 Church, has a Twitter handle at Dr. Sammy Kim. We also have a YouTube channel at 180 Church NYC, where I'm sure most of you guys are watching us right now. And we also have two different Instagram pages at 180 Church and also at 180BRG, where there are really encouraging posts and verses that get shared there. So I hope you guys will follow us there and be encouraged. We also have the 180 Church podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends, where you can tune into a conversation and a dialogue that goes into goes into the word a little bit deeper with Pastor Lydia and Joe Lu, who's a member of our community here. It's always a great time just listening to them um, converse about how the message has spoke to them and has impacted them, and you can see how it can do the same for you. We also have a virtual 180 Cafe on the Discord app where you guys can come hang out at any time in different groups on different channels. And it's an easy way to stay connected with the community and also check in with one another. As you might have seen on our social media channels, we launched a care package delivery service called 180 Cares. And this is a great way to um, show appreciation and love to the people in our lives that, mean, that may need some encouragement. If you'd like to send one of these boxes or just want to learn more, you can go check out our website at 180church.tv slash 180cares. And lastly, if you've been blessed by our Sunday worship led by Pastor Lydia, you can visit the 180 Church Studios on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Here you'll find a playlist of all the worship songs we feature every Sunday, and it's perfect for when you want to immerse yourself in worship during the week. That's all of our community news. Once again, we want to thank everyone for joining us this Sunday, and we hope to see you again soon. Bye.